power is good. All right. Good morning. Good morning. Hey, we're really glad that you're here and uh, just have a special treat for all of us uh, this morning. As Pastor Paul had mentioned, we had a special guest speaker in uh, for the men's retreat this weekend and uh, was just really blessed uh, by his teaching. And so uh, I'm excited to be able to introduce to you Todd Burrow. And uh, Todd has, is a pastor at Bennington Bible Church, uh, which is in central Kansas. Uh, he's been there for 22 years, and so he must be doing something right over there. But, uh, you know, it's interesting in our lives, uh, we have, you know, people really that we stand on the shoulders of. Have you ever thought about that? You know, that there are people that are go before you, and they are the ones that you sort of stand on their shoulders. They are the ones that show you the way, they mentor you, uh, they set the foundation and the stage. And I think in my life, you know, I just had the opportunity uh, to serve under some really good pastoral leadership. And I'm really thankful for Pastor Paul and being able to serve under his leadership here. I'm thankful for my dad and just years of pastoral ministry. Uh, but I am uniquely thankful for Pastor Todd. And uh, Todd was my youth pastor back when I was in junior high and high school. And so uh, he put up with a lot. And uh, we did a lot of fun things together. We got in a little bit of trouble together at times. Uh, but it was just really good. And uh, he has just been a faithful friend over the years. And not just a pastor, um, but just as uh, a fellow uh, minister of the gospel over the years, we've served together in some different areas, and it's just been really good. And even over the years when things have been hard, Todd has been uh, present, and he has been supportive and faithful just in our own friendship. And so uh, he just really means a lot to me, and I'm very thankful for him. And I, uh, in a lot of ways, probably... Um, Todd is one of the more influential people along with my dad of, of why I'm in ministry and how, you know, just God using them uh, to call me into ministry. And so uh, I'm just really thankful and uh, appreciate your passion and your leadership and your friendship and uh, excited for what God is going to share with us this morning through you. And so if you'll just welcome Pastor Todd. That makes sense. Here. <laughs> He's on drugs right now, so. <laughs> you can ignore most of what he says. Uh, if, if you're on my, sh- if I'm on, if you're on my shoulders, I'm on Dave's, and so uh, it's pretty cool how God works that out. Uh, it's what a delight to be here. I'm honored. I, I, I can't believe that God would let me stand before you and and preach. And so thanks for being here. Man, I apologize. You have to listen to me one more time, but uh, what, a, what a joy to be here. Thank you so much. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and you can go there and be prepared as we walk through God's Word today. Uh, I heard this story. It's interesting. Uh, you know, uh, there was a uh, two soldiers that were riding in a train together. One of them was a private and the other was a colonel. And they were going somewhere on task and they're sitting on a train. And if you've ever been on a train, like taking the Metro into Chicago, sometimes there's, you know, seats that face each other. And the, and the two soldiers were sitting next to each other and they were facing uh, two women, an older woman and her granddaughter. 
And they just were riding through the countryside enjoying the trip. And, and you could tell that the private and this young woman were kind of hitting it off. And they, you know, looked at each other with, you know, loving eyes. And uh, just something was going on there. And as they go through uh, the countryside, suddenly they went through a tunnel and it was totally dark. And you hear two things. You hear this smack of a kiss and then a louder smack of something across somebody's face. And when they came out of the tunnel, there were four different expressions on all of their faces. They were all thinking something differently. Uh, the, the, the grandmother was thinking, well, I can't believe that young man kissed her, but I'm glad she slapped him on the face. And the young woman said, well, I'm glad he kissed me, but I can't believe my grandma slapped him. And the, the, the colonel said, well, you know, I don't blame the guy for trying to kiss her, but I can't believe she slapped me. And then as they came out of the tunnel, the uh, young man had a smile on his face and he said, you know, it's not every day you get to kiss a beautiful woman and slap your colonel at the same time. And he took this incredible opportunity. It's like, I have a shot here. I'm going to do both of those things, you know, and then that's life. He was a kind of a carpe diem sort of guy that God has given me an opportunity and I'm going to take it. And, you know, God has given us opportunities right now. We live in the most amazing time and we can complain about everything that's going on or we can embrace it. We are front row center to the greatest show on earth. I mean, it's absolutely crazy. It's a 20 ring circus and we see all of this stuff that's going on and yet God has us right here, right now. It's not an accident that you were born for such a time as this. You are here because God wanted you here. His sovereign will is being played out in our life and it's just amazing. And so instead of you know, complaining about what you're dealing with, maybe you should say, okay, Lord, what are you telling me? Why am I here for this time, for this purpose? You know, the coach has finally called you off the bench and it's time to get in the game and to do what God has called you to do. But the choice is up to you. You know, what are you gonna do with the life that God has given to you? What do you see when you look out into the world? What, what does your heart do when you talk to your neighbor or when you see a tragedy like what took place last night in, in Texas. I mean, does it break your heart? Does it call you to something? Uh, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, he was moved by something. He had a desire for something. His life had been absolutely transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and his life took on purpose. And in writing to the Corinthians, he he challenges them and he shares a bit of his own heart with them. In verse 14 through verse 20, this is God's word and this is what it says. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do, not, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. And the, old, the old is gone and the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us 
the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us, and and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. Whew, that's an amazing passage of scripture. That is a daunting task. It is a high calling. But if you ever take notes, if you write things down, maybe there are three words that to me stand out in this passage. And they are passion, power, and purpose. So let's just talk about that today. First of all, if we are you know, followers of Jesus Christ, if we have been impacted by the gospel, then there ought to be a passion because we've encountered, we've encountered the risen Christ. If you know Jesus, you have eternal life. You have something to look forward to that uh, the Bible says eye has not seen and ear has not heard and mind has not conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. I mean, our retirement plan is out of this world, literally. It's going to be amazing. What we have to look forward to is incredible. And so what we look back on ought to inspire us to live in the present moment for his glory and on purpose. When I, when I got saved, I was 14 years old. I was unchurched. We, uh, we didn't go to church. We weren't even, you know, Christmas and Easter kind of people. Every once in a while we'd go and old man Mr. Odom would invite me to VBS and I'd go there just to, you know, eat candy and do whatever you're not supposed to do. And you talk about trouble. I mean, I was in trouble before I met Dan and uh, I've rubbed off on him. But, but I, 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 when, when, when I went to high school, I wanted to be popular like everybody else. And so, you know, sports was that way. You play football, you play baseball, you, you try to fit in. And I went to Genoa. And so it was a smaller school and you could actually compete a little bit. And so I remember playing football and uh, after practice one day, or actually in the middle of practice, we were taking a water break. A junior invited me to something called FCA, Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And he was a junior and upperclassmen didn't generally talk to freshmen. And so whatever he said was something I wanted to do. And when I heard Christian, I didn't really hear that, but I heard athlete and I thought, well, hey, and he said, we're going to eat. And I thought, that's even better. So there's going to be food. There's going to be jocks there. And maybe it's my path to popularity. And so I went to FCA from, you know, the end of August all the way through the end of October. And at the end of October, after a huddle meeting, Chad Ruback, this guy that I watched his life, and it was amazing, he, he shared the gospel with me. And he asked me if I'd like to trust Christ as my Savior and I, I didn't really understand what that meant, but understood enough to know that uh, I probably needed to do that, but I didn't want to do it in front of him. So I said, no, I don't think so. But I went home and I, I went in our bathroom. It's the only place you get alone in my house. And so I knelt in front of the bathtub and I prayed this simple prayer. Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that my sins have separated me from you, but I, I believe that Jesus died for me. I believe he rose again and I would just like you to forgive my sins and, and, and come into my heart and be my savior. And guess what? 
He did. <laughs> he did. I mean, something happened to me. I can't say that there were fireworks or anything like that. I didn't see a light show. There was no, you know, vision from God. But something happened in my heart. God killed the old man, and he filled me with his spirit. And he gave me this incredible desire to tell people about it. I wanted my friends to know. I started to, you know, tell people at school. And believe it or not, they actually started calling me Pastor Todd. Which, I mean, I think it was, you know, a derogatory term, but I felt it was a term of endearment. I'm like, yeah, that sounds good. Maybe that's what I should do with my life. And, um, and I got fired up about it, and I was, it was really a, a transformative uh, time in my life. I actually had a, a button that I wore on one of my jackets. I was such a geek. I can't believe I did this. But the button read, you'd smile too if you were going to heaven. Because it's true. I mean, it's not, why are you smiling? I'll tell you why I'm smiling. Because I'm going to heaven. Isn't that great? But I had a darker side. On the back of my car, I had a bumper sticker that said, turn or burn. <laughs> so I'm not sure which I was more uh, effective with. But I was, you know, there was something... There was something about what God did that gave me this desire, this zeal to let other people know. And I think Paul, you know, would, 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 would relate to that. And he said, for it is Christ's love that compels us. It controls us. It, it takes a hold of us. It, 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 it makes us captive to who he is and what he's done because we are convinced We believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that one man died for all. That there was a person that came into this world, the Son of God, and he died for my sins. And if that doesn't light you up, then your wood's wet. You know, something's not right. There's something amazing about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Have you considered what he's done in your heart? During World War II, there was a Dutch pastor and his family who were hiding Jews in their home because they believed they were God's chosen people and and nobody should be treated the way Hitler was treating them and so he hid them but the Gestapo eventually found them and the SS showed up and and took the family and everybody else and they threw them on one of those cattle cars and they knew because they'd heard the stories where they were going they were being led to either a concentration camp or an execution camp and they knew that their lives were about to go from pretty good to absolutely awful. And that night they rode in that cold car and they were thinking about what's going to happen. They rode all through the night thinking they're going into Nazi Germany. And when the day came, somebody opened that door to reveal that they weren't in Nazi Germany, rather they were actually in Switzerland. Because in the night, somebody ahead of the train had switched the track had pulled a switch that led them not to death, but led them to life. Can you imagine that? And the pastor at the end of it, he said this. He said, what do you do? What do you do with such a gift? What do you do when you're given a reprieve? What do you do when you're given a second chance? What do you do when you're given eternal life? You certainly don't waste it, do you? And we hear songs, and the songs resonate with me, and I love it. And one of the songs that I've sung and and love to sing is, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the king of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and, and poor contempt on all my pride. 
Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my King. All the vain things that charm me most, I I sacrifice them to your blood. See, from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did ever such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. When we consider the lengths to which God went to save us in sending His only Son, that should transform us. Do you own it? Is that your story? I remember reading about a, an older gentleman who was a, a godly man and people looked up to him and one younger Christian came up to him and he said, you know, I, I've noticed your life and I've seen so many people who live for Jesus for a little while and then they sort of stop. But you've been consistent for decades. What is it about your faith that has transcended all of so many other lives? And being an old man, he sat back on his rocking chair and he said, let me tell you a story. He said, you see that dog over there? That's my dog. The other day we were sitting in this very place and, and my dog saw a rabbit And he started chasing that rabbit all over the place, barking and howling. And pretty soon, these other dogs joined the chase. And they were going up and down and through the bushes and all over the place. And he ran hard after that rabbit. And those dogs ran hard after that rabbit. But pretty soon, one after another, those other dogs just peeled off. And they stopped following the rabbit. And then he said, do you know what I'm talking about? Do you know why that story means so much to me? And the guy said, no, I have no idea what this has to do with my question. He said, it's this. My dog saw the rabbit. The other dog saw the dog chasing the rabbit. My dog saw the rabbit. And it was what he saw that compelled him to chase When you don't see what you're running after, pretty soon you quit. I have to tell you, I have seen Jesus Christ. I've seen what he can do in my life. And I'd be a fool to walk away. I'd be a fool to give that up. If what we talk about is true, then there ought to be a passion in our life. That we ought to get up and say, what is it, Lord? What do you want me to do with my life? Because he's done so much for us. Not only do we have a passion because we've encountered the risen Christ, but I would say secondly that we should understand that we have a power because we have been enabled by the Spirit of God. Just a little phrase there, it says, all this is from God. You know, that God has done a work in you. And, and, and when you are reconciled to God, when, when the new birth happens, when, when you believe, then God responds 
And he, he fills us with his spirit. And that spirit gives us an incredible power. In fact, uh, Acts 1.8 says this, doesn't it? It says, but you will receive power. Dunamis, dynamite. When? When the spirit comes upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. When you are born again by the Spirit of God, he doesn't say, now go try to live for me on your own. Go try to take care of it all in your flesh. You'll fail. The arm of flesh will fail you. Didn't Martin Luther sing that in one of his wonderful hymns? The question is, are you using everything that's at your disposal. A young man and his young son were working out in the field one day and and the father said to the son, I want you to move that stone. It's a big stone. Move it. I think you can do it. And I want you to do this. I want you to make sure that you use all the strength that you have available. Do everything in your power to move this stone. And the little boy said, all right, dad. And he goes to trying to move that stone and he can't budge it. Weighs twice as much as he does. He tries and he tries and he tries. Dad, I just can't do it. I can't do it. Have you used all your power? Everything that's at your disposal? Yeah, Dad, I'm I'm trying to look sweat and I'm I'm hurting. I'm starting to bleed on my hands. I, I can't do it. Have you used all the power at your disposal? I have. No, no, you haven't. Have you asked for my help? I'm right here. Have you asked me to help you move the stone? Well, no. Well, then you're not using all the strength that's at your disposal. Well, will you help me move the stone? I'd be glad to. And the two of them bent down, and with the father's strength, his son moved the stone. This is what we have. The the, the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead lives in us. Isn't it incredible that God would actually ask you to do this job called the Great Commission? That God would leave us here to do this task without ever empowering us to do it? I mean, it's amazing. God and us, we, we get to partner. We get to partner in bringing the gospel to the world. It reminds me of back when I lived here Uh, watching the Chicago Bulls, you know, back when they had a basketball team. I don't know if you remember that or not. Uh, In the 90s, and they had this guy named Michael Jordan, who was just the best, incredible team to watch. But Jordan was so fluid and so amazing. He scored points and he did so much. And there's a game I remember watching, and uh, Michael had just maybe the game of his life, 69 points. In a 117-113 victory over the Cleveland Cavaliers, he was 23 of 27 from the field, 21 of 23 foul shots, 18 rebounds, 6 assists, 4 steals. Incredible game. And a guy that was playing with him is a guy named Stacy King. I don't know if you remember Stacy King or not. He was a fledgling basketball player forward. I think he played for the University of Oklahoma. And Stacey King was playing next to Michael Jordan that night. And in the whole game, Stacey King went one for two from the free throw line. But I love what Stacey King said when a reporter was talking to him at the end of the game. He said this, 
I'll always remember this as the night that Michael Jordan and I combined for 70 points. <laughs> Isn't that great? It's true. It's a true statement. But who scored the most points? It was Michael. I mean, this is us. We, we get to jump on this incredible calling with the help of God. In the end, we can say, boy, I, I'm so glad. I'll never forget. This is the life I lived where, where me and Jesus, we, we brought the Great Commission to the world. And we did nothing. We do nothing. We just are obedient and we are active and we just show up and we let him do whatever he wants to do through us. Because it's his power that gives us this ability. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 1, 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the holy people, and his incomparable great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. And seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. That the spirit that brought Jesus back to life, that the spirit that rolled the stone away, that the spirit that, 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 that empowered him to live again lives in me. I know this in theory. But I have to be honest with you, I'm not sure I've ever tapped into it in reality. That the risen Christ lives in me. The resurrection power lives in you if you're in Christ. I love to quote Tozer from time to time. And he said this regarding the resurrection. And this is really the clarion call for the church. Christ's triumph over death. The foundation and fountain of our faith was everything to early believers. Christ rising from the dead was first an amazing thing. Then it became a joyful wonder. Then then a radiance of conviction supported by many infallible proofs. This became became to the first Christians the reason for everything. The battle cry of the early Christian was he's risen. And it became to them outright courage. In the first 200 years, hundreds of thousands of Christians died as martyrs to those early Christians. Easter. Easter was not a holiday or even a holy day. It was not a day at all. It was an accomplished fact that lived with them all year long and became the reason for their daily conduct. He lives, they said, and we live. He was triumphant, and in him we are triumphant. He is with us, and he leads us, and we follow. They turned their faces toward an altogether new life because Christ was raised from the dead. They did not celebrate his rising from the dead and then go back to their everyday lives and wait for another year to pull themselves up out of the mire. They lived by the fact that Christ had risen from the dead, and they had risen with him. There is a power at your disposal that the Spirit of God has for you. The question is, have you connected to it? Are you abiding in Christ and allowing him to produce that in you? I'm not sure how many of you are fans of Dallas Willard, but he illustrates the point, I think, really well. He says this, as a child, 
I lived in an area of southern Missouri where electricity was available only in the form of lightning. But in my senior year of high school, electrical power became available to households and farms. When those lines came by our farm, a very different way of living presented itself. Our relationship to fundamental aspects of life, daylight and dark, hot and cold, clean and dirty, work and leisure, preparing food and preserving it, could then be vastly changed for the better. But we still had to believe in the electricity and its arrangement, understand them, and take the practical steps involved in relying on it. You may think the comparison rather crude, and in some respects it is, but but it will help us to understand Jesus' basic message about the kingdom of heaven if we pause to reflect on those farmers who in effect heard this message. Repent, for electricity is at hand. Repent or turn turn from your kerosene lamps and lanterns, your ice boxes and cellars, your scrub boards and rug beaters. The power that could make their lives far better was right there near them, whereby making relatively simple arrangements, they could utilize it. Strangely, strangely, a few did not accept it. They did not enter the kingdom of electricity. Some just didn't want to change. Others couldn't afford it, or so they thought. To be sure, the kingdom of God has been made available to us through simple confidence in Jesus and through him, the power of the Holy Spirit. When Paul was speaking to the Colossians, and this is a guy that outworked everybody, I mean, he was by and far and away maybe one of the greatest men who's ever lived. He, he wore himself out for the gospel. He, he lived his whole life for the Great Commission. But he says, I toil, struggling with all of his energy, which he powerfully works within me. Colossians 1.29. So we have been given this encounter with Jesus Christ. And that ought to that ought to produce in us this passion. And when we've trusted him to save us, he has given us the spirit of God, thus enabling us to walk in obedience and to fulfill the great commission. But lastly, we also should have, with those two things, a purpose because we envision the lost. We're left here with a message. The the Bible says that we are given the, the message of reconciliation. We have been reconciled to God and therefore he's given us that ministry. Incredible, isn't it? To think about that that's what God has called us to. What we were singing in this song today and 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 the chorus you guys we just sang a bunch of O's. Do you remember that? Just oh, 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 oh. It was great. I like O's. O's are fine with me. <laughs> because as I'm, as I'm listening to it, I'm reminded of, uh, of an actor. Back in the 1800s, his name was David Garrick. David Garrick was this incredible Shakespearean actor. And people would come from miles around to, to, to listen to him quote Shakespeare. And he was amazing and he's wealthy. But Garrick one day was walking the streets of London and he was deeply moved by a man standing on the corner preaching the gospel. 
And in the middle of his sermon, a woman said to him, Sir, I've heard you plead five times today on various streets of this city, and five times I have seen your tears. Why do you weep? He replied that he couldn't help but weep with concern over the fearful condition of the lost. And that tearful preacher was known in the eastern colonies of the United States of America as George Whitfield. Garrick says this, as I listened to Whitfield, I saw his passion and his merciful heart. I know he meant that without Christ, people would die. When he came to the place where he could say nothing more, he, he reached up those mighty arms and his voice seemed almost like a thunderstorm as he, as he yearned over the people and he said, Oh! Oh! Then Garrett concluded, I would give a handful of gold sovereigns if I could say, Oh! Like Whitfield. What was it that empowered Whitfield even to speak with such zeal one word. It was the spirit of Jesus Christ. It was the purpose at which he had been called and it was looking out over his crowd and being brokenhearted because of their lost condition. So Paul says, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. We don't look at the world and we just wonder, I wonder what they do for a living. I wonder what their life is like. I wonder what kind of car they drive, what kind of house they live in, what kind of job they work. If I look at you, if I've met you for the first time, I can't help it. The first thing that comes to my mind is I wonder where you're going to spend eternity. I wonder where you'll go when your heart stops beating. I wonder where you'll go when you die. It's a blessing and a curse. But I think it's how we ought to look at people. One of my favorite authors is a man by the name of C.S. Lewis. And I love what he says. I love how he writes. I just finished my daughter-in-law. She, she said, you, you quote Lewis all the time. Have you ever read the Narnia Chronicles? I'm like, oh, no. Uh, uh, but I've seen the movies, or at least a couple of them. She says, you got to read the Chronicles. And I said, okay. And she sent me all of the Chronicles of Narnia. Have you, have you read them? Oh, my. Written in the 40s for children. And they're still like, how could kids read something like this? But it's so simple and so profound. And I love Lewis. I, I love his books. I love the things that he said. But maybe the one of the most profound quotes that I've ever heard from Jack is this. There are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as that of the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. You have never met a mere mortal. Everybody that you rub shoulders with will live forever somewhere. This life is a vapor. It's here and it's gone. I think I said to the men this weekend, 
Have you ever been outside in a cold February Illinois winter and you just have to breathe for this to be obvious? That steam comes out of your mouth and it rises and it's gone. It was there and it's gone. What is your life? It's a vapor. You will live for millions of years. You will live so much further than the little bitty life. And so will everybody else. When you die, you don't just die. You go to two destinations, one of two. You will either spend eternity in the presence of God, in a new heaven and a new earth, with a new nature and no sin and no tears and no sorrow and no death and no demons and no hell and no Satan. And the glory of God just lights the place up. Or you will spend eternity separated from God. Darkness. Blackest darkness. Hell fire. Separation from God. Being given over to his wrath because you chose to pay for your own sins. Those are the only two destinations. There is nothing else. There's no in-between. And everybody who's ever lived will be resurrected to eternal life or eternal damnation. This is a big deal. This is a serious calling. It's something we must think about. David Livingston, as he went to Africa, he said this, the haunting specter of the smoke of a thousand villages in the morning sun has burned its image on my heart. I remember reading that before I ever went to Africa And just the last time I was coming back down from, uh, or the time before I was coming back down from Kasese to Rwanda, and I looked up into that area, you know, that's really mountainous, and I literally saw what Livingston saw. I saw these little smoke puffs coming up out of the wooded area, and I thought of what he said, the haunting specter of the smoke of a thousand villages in the morning sun has burned has burned that image into my heart. But you don't have to go to Africa to see lost people. In fact, God is doing so much more in Africa than it seems he's doing in the West. The greatest mission field perhaps is in the West. And so God says to us that he's given us the ministry of reconciliation. God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, gave us the ministry of reconciliation to bring two people back into relationship. He says, and is committed to us, the message of reconciliation. And I love this verse. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. Can you believe that? I think I remember one time somebody said, yeah, can you imagine when God, Jesus, went back to heaven and the angels surrounded him and he said, so so how'd it go? (laughs) Like they wouldn't know, they would know. But uh, what's the plan? Well, um, I've left this commission. You could even call it a great commission with 11 guys. And the angel said, what? Yeah, I left it with 11 guys. And the angel said, well, what's your backup plan? And Jesus said, there is no backup plan. We're it. This is it. You've been called. You can't look for somebody else to do what God has called you to do. 
And we ought to be on fire about that. When I was 16 years old, I was reading Romans chapter 10. And it said, For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call upon the one in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe on him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? How beautiful it is written are the feet of those who preach good news. I I sensed God calling me when I was 16 years old to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I'm not the only one. You I have too. The Great Commission is to all of us. Larry Crabb said the, the core problem is not that we are too passionate about bad things, but that we are not passionate enough about good things. That there are people that are out there that need the Lord. Uh, Jackie, my wife, she, she surprised me and she said, hey, I want to I I take you to the Cubs game. This is in February. I'm like, they don't play yet. I know that they will in Arizona. And we're going. I'm like, yes, let's go. Arizona, that's going to be great. And her cousin, her cousin, I can't believe it, her cousin lives in a place called Sun City West. It's weird to be old enough to be cousins of somebody that lives in a retirement village. <laughs> I'm 55 years old, and I could have gone. Like, I could go. I could be there. I could live there. I couldn't believe it. I'd be like the youngest guy there, but I could be there. So we get to Sun City West. We're about to go to the, the Cubs game later in the week. And, and, and her, her cousin is named Jackie and her uh, husband is named Dave. And so we're at Jackie and Dave's house. And Dave says to me, hey, uh, I got a softball game tomorrow. You want to you watch? I'm like, okay, a softball game for old people. This will be great. <laughs> and I get up the next morning. And Dave comes out, and he's all fully uniformed. Like, I mean, every stirrups and pants and a hat. It was, like, so funny. He's like a little little leaguer. I thought he'd have his bat with a, you know, but it was so amazing. He was so excited about going to his baseball game. And so I go to the, the field in Sun City West, and, and we drive up. And, you know, when we were boys, when I was a little boy, I had a little uh, empty lot next to our, our house. We called it Burrow Stadium. It's where we played baseball every day. And everybody would ride their bikes there, and we'd throw the bikes down, and we'd play all day. And I get to the field, and instead of bikes, it's golf carts lined up all around the field. It was wonderful. And I'm sitting there, I'm looking at these guys play baseball or softball and, 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 and the bravado. These guys are all cocky. It's like they're teenagers all over again. And, and it's so fun to watch people that, that they just can't do it anymore. You know, I remember, I remember when I lost a step. Like, I remember when I think I can get that ball, and I just couldn't get there. My, my body wouldn't do what my brain said. And it's so much worse when you're, like, in your 70s. But I'm watching the game. I'm thinking, you know, I, I think I could compete with these guys. I think they'd give me a shot. You know, they have tryouts. I can't believe I'm telling you this. Uh, this isn't really part of the sermon. But they have tryouts. They have different leagues. So you try out for the American League or the National League or one other league, and they, they have a draft. You don't get to pick the team. You get picked. And I'm like, I think I could play. I want to play. I want to, play. I want to go to Sun City West and, and, and try out and enter the draft in Arizona. Because uh, I know I could play. And so uh, anyway, I'm watching. I'm on the sideline watching and listening to them. And, and I hear them. And it's GD this and Jesus Christ that. And it's like, whoa. 
These men who are self-made, who are successful, who've arrived at this destination. And there's so much to do. There's bocce ball, there's bowling, there's golf, there's miniature golf, there's paddle ball, there's, there's pickleball, there's, there's, there's table tennis, there's, there's, there's walking trails, there, you can make wine, you can make beer, you can make coffee, you can have all these clubs, and I'm looking at them play base softball and do all their things, and I just was heartbroken because I thought in my mind, here these people are, distracting themselves with all these activities, waiting to die. And this is it. This is the coup de grace. This is, this is the pinnacle of their life. And then they're going to die. And I thought, this is the greatest mission field in all the world. Who's sharing the gospel with them? Who's bringing it there? I'm sure there are those there. But I thought, as I thought about my own church, we have so many people that are in small groups and men's groups and women's groups and, and, and we Bible study all the time and we're deep into God's word and we know it so well. And I thought to myself, there's these two worlds. There, there's this world right here. And we know more about the Bible than we ever will share. We, we know so much. We become theologians and we never open up and share it with anybody. It's like we just have this knowledge about God. But why do you have it? Why do you want to know about God if it's not to share it with somebody else? And I thought to myself, these worlds must collide. This world must collide with the one that's out there, the one that are out riding their bikes and enjoying the weather and have no thought of God at all. We can't get stuck inside of this building. We've got to take what we know and share it with the world. I mean, I want to know deeply God. I become a theologian and I think about these things, but I want them to be practical too. I want to take this to other people. I'd like to suggest that God, he has people around you riding the bus with you. They're at your office. They're in your classroom. They're standing in line at Walmart. They're at the hospital with you. They're in the living room with you. They're on the field or the court or the diamond or the mat with you. They're on the factory floor with you. And he has these people in your life. And you've been called to represent him in that spot. According to Scientific America, we speak about 16,000 words a day. We like to imagine ourselves conversing with a very rich and diverse group of people. But separate research studies show that we routinely talk to a very small group of the same people over and over and over again. Although most of us converse with 7 to 15 different people every day, about 80% of our words are shared with a small group of about five entrusted confidants, allies, and buddies. That means that close to 13,000 of your 16,000 words are directed at a very small group of friends. Who are those five? And what are you talking about? Why not make it your mission with the five people that God has given to you to bring the gospel to them. I'm not necessarily suggesting that you stand on a street corner and preach the gospel unless God calls you to, but I'm suggesting that you start right where you are. Do they know what really matters to you? Do they know the power of the gospel? You know it. Do you speak it? There was a minister who shared faithfully most of his life, and he came down with the disease that was eventually going to kill him, 
But before it killed him, it was going to take all of his muscular ability away. The man who used his voice to preach was going to lose his voice. And eventually he did lose his voice. He could no longer speak. But he could still write. And he wrote. But pretty soon the writing would even become difficult. One Easter morning, though, before his handwriting went bad, he wrote to his daughter and he said this. It's a terrible thing to wake up on Easter morning and have no voice with which to shout, He is risen! But it would be still more terrible to have a voice and not want to shout. You have a voice. Shout or whisper or speak. Do you know that in the world, 51% of the world has tasted Coca-Cola. 97% of the world has heard of Coca-Cola. 97% have heard of Coca-Cola. 72% of the world has seen a Coke bottle or can. You know how long Coca-Cola's been around? About 135 years. I'm not sure what the percentage is of the world that's heard the gospel, heard the name of Jesus, but I would suggest it's not 97%. You know how long Christianity's been around? 2,000 years. Coca-Cola is better missionaries than the church of Jesus Christ. What's wrong with us? (laughs) God is calling us to it. And he's given you, hopefully, a passion. He's given you a power And you certainly have a purpose, but it's really up to you what you'll do with it. Charles Spurgeon said, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of exertion and let not one go there unwarned. Or unprayed for. Trey Gowdy, and I'll, I'll close with this. He was speaking to the students at Liberty University, and I watched him, and I wrote down what he said. I think it's profound. He said, If you're waiting for a knight in shining armor on a white horse to change whatever you think ails our country, or school, or community, or families, it's not going to happen. Do you know who the messenger is? It's you. It's not me. I don't know you. I don't know where you come from. I don't know your friends. I don't hang out with you. I'm not going home with you. I'm not going to work with you. I'm not in class with you. You're the messenger. And then he said this. I work in a town that's named for George Washington. Fly into an airport named for Ronald Reagan. I pass monuments to Jefferson and Lincoln and King. Every street is named after somebody famous. There are statues and portraits in every office building. When you fly into D.C., the pilot will usually tell you to look out to see this monument or that. But I don't lean over to look at that monument. Do you know what I think about when I fly into Reagan? I think about a guy you've never heard of. You've never heard of him. I was about your age. I was exactly your age, watching television with my father, 
February in the throes of a terribly frigid winter in Washington and a plane crashes into the 14th Street Bridge and all the passengers except a half dozen were killed on impact. And those half dozen were in the icy waters of the Potomac River. Pretty soon you hear the whir of a helicopter coming. And the helicopter lowers a rope ladder into the waiting arms of waiting waters of the Potomac. And it falls into the hands of a man you never heard of. So he has life in his hands. And he passes it to a stranger. And that person is hoisted to safety. And the helicopter takes her away. And the same scene repeats itself four more times. And every time he's got his hands on a rope ladder. He's this close to saving his life. And every single time he passes it to a stranger. Not his wife, not his daughter, not his best friend, but a stranger. And when the helicopter came back for him, he'd succumbed to fatigue and drowned in the icy waters of the Potomac. His name was Arland Williams. I'm not asking you to be Reagan. I'm not asking you to be Lincoln. I'm just asking you to live a quiet life of conviction and virtue and actually live out what you profess to believe. If you can do that, you'll be a leader. You'll be persuasive. And your generation will get this country headed back in a direction that you want it to be in. I would say that to you regarding the life that you live and where you are. God has placed you here for a reason. He's called you and he's called that baby for such a time as this. The voice is clear. (laughs) What will you do with this one life? I pray that God will use you. I tell you guys, I've been excited to see what God's doing in your men's group. Amazing. Jim, I love your heart. The guy can't talk without crying. It's amazing. I love that. <laughs> but it's who he is, and it's, it's authentic, and it's real, because he loves you guys. And So I pray for you, and I pray that God would bless you. Let me just close with a prayer. Sir Francis Drake, he said this, Disturb us, Lord, when we are too pleased with ourselves, when our dreams have come true because we have dreamed too little when we arrive safely because we've sailed too close to the shore. Disturb us, Lord, when with the abundance of things we possess, we've lost our thirst for the waters of life. We've fallen in love with life. We've ceased to dream of eternity. In our effort to build a new earth, we've allowed our vision of the new heaven to dim. Disturb us, Lord, to dare more boldly to venture on wider seas where storms will show your mastery, where losing sight of land we shall find the stars. We ask you to push back the horizons of our hopes and to push into the future in strength, courage, hope, and love. And Lord, I say amen to that. And I just pray a blessing over my friends, my brothers and sisters here. And I pray that you do more than we could ask or think or imagine. Bless these wonderful people. I pray this in Jesus' name.